0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew here today. Eric Bradlow is here, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, all faculty colleagues here at the Wharton School have been doing the show for nine and coming up on a half years. We are coming to you via Zoom, as we have been most weeks since the pandemic hit three and a half years ago. We are recording on Tuesday afternoon, again, as we usually do these days. The show will go up tomorrow morning. It'll be on SiriusXM a few times over the course of the week. We'll get the podcast up usually on Wednesday as well. Gentlemen, afternoon to you. I see. Ah, Eric is in in, in far flung places that I'm jealous of. Adi's in the office and Shane's at home. I'm at home, but we're all here in, in Zoom for the next hour. I, I want to start with the Women's World Cup. Have y'all, are y'all? Let's be honest. Have you? Are you still paying attention without the U.S. women in there? We're sneaking up on the finals. We're recording this right between the two semis. So Spain made it through Sweden last night. Early this morning. England and Australia and kind of the, I don't know, maybe the premier game of the tournament so far. It's always fun when you have this colonial tension. It's always fun when you have geopolitical considerations of any kind. And, of course, Australia is the host company playing what is probably, remember, right, guys, the favorite left in the tournament. Well, especially now they knocked out the Swedes, but even before then, once the U.S. was gone, I believe the U.K. top team. So any thoughts on this as we come down to near the final?
2: I think one of the things we all do as sports fans, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, Cade, but in a different sport, but related, you know, with the, when James Harden came out with his statement that, you know, he's not really playing for, he doesn't want to play for the Sixers, et cetera, You start to think, so the Sixers, if I remember correctly, got beaten by the Celtics, right? And then the Celtics got beaten by the Heat. So we didn't even get beaten. And then the Heat got beat by the Nuggets. So we didn't get beat by the team that won the finals. We got beat by the team that didn't make the finals either. And so now you start to say, well, the US women, they lost to Sweden. Okay, Sweden had a very, very good tournament. But they got beaten by Spain, who's going to the finals. So I do that when I watch sports. I think so. If the U.S. says we want to get back to the top of Women's World Cup, okay. So where are they relatively? That's the way I tend to think of sports. In other words, we got beaten by the team that got beaten in the semifinals.
1: It's hilarious, Eric. Yeah, there was a there was a there was a there was a, a March Madness tournament five six years ago where Texas lost in the first round, and then every subsequent round, I'm li- literally all six of them. The team that won lost. So Texas, the team that beat Texas lost in the next round. The team that beat them lost in the round of 16. It's the worst possible thing you do from the Eric Bradlow transitivity criterion yeah. of how you did the tournament. Texas did the single worst thing you could do. It's really funny. I don't. We can't put that much stock in it, right? I mean, it's a good story, yeah, I but mean, you don't expect that kind of transitivity. I,
3: I, I typically, depends on the usage, but I typically put more stock in when, when Eric talks about momentum then I would put stock in transitivity in sports. I, I don't think. Shane, I don't think,
1: I don't think you're putting a lot of stock in Eric's momentum, if I'm not mistaken. so No, that's I'm, right.
3: I, of, of the two concepts, I'm putting more stock in <laughs> momentum.
1: Okay, I see. I see where you are. Hey,
3: hey,
2: but let, let me just be clear. I wasn't arguing. Matter yeah. of fact, I've argued for many times in this show. Matchups play a key role. I don't believe things are transitive. I'm just trying to think from a statistical like, I'll call it a distance perspective. How far am I getting some information about how far I am from being the top team? And so to me, the fact that the U.S. lost to Sweden, it gives some information. That's all. If no, it's get, the like, fact that the U.S. Sample.
3: lost by like an inch in a penalty shootout. I mean, <laughs> any, any reasonable soccer fan would call the result of that matchup a tie. I mean, it can't be a tie because it's knockout round, but that that was a tie.
0: Yeah, but weren't weren't the U.S. women favored? I mean, the fact that it ended up being a tie was probably a pretty bad result for them. I mean, they were the better. How teams. many
3: soccer games ended a tie, even when the two teams? Anyway, well, yeah. I don't know about the. There's I no don't signal. In gaps, that I don't think. right,
1: gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Let's not talk about our home team just because we're homers. We got women still on the pitch playing this game. Shane, very important geopolitical question. As a former colony. Do you are you naturally pulling for Australia, Canadian?
3: No. No. No, I think it's like uh if anything, it's uh pulling against Australia. I, I think the Canadian ethos in general, I mean I I'm projecting. I shouldn't speak for all my brethren, but my own thing is it's more about kind of like the two the two uh the two like sons fighting fighting over the you know uh, sibling dads. I, I think there's more rivalry uh, it's more like the Boston Philly thing where neither of us real you know, the 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 mother, you know, New York doesn't see us either really as rivals, <laughs> but and that should unite us, but if anything, it, yeah. I think it, it divides us. Okay, certainly the yeah. Olympics, Canadians are always kind of all you know, you've heard my rant about how the Australians pile up medals and swimming because it's like half the medals at the Olympics. Okay, no, Don't this is very
1: that. see, it's much yep, more there insight. By, there's more insight there than I expected. Thank you. Not, <laughs> I expected insight from you, not from the question. I'm honestly <laughs> question. I'm
3: sorry. put that on my epitaph, Shane Jensen, really? more insight than expected,
1: <laughs> Eric home home field advantage home nation host country advantage
2: i think there's got to be absolutely i think there is i think um there'll probably be i mean the fans have to play some role and also look we've talked about this in tons of sports there are subjective calls made by umpires and referees in games and i don't mean by the way whether the ball crossed the line because now we do have you know as the u.s lost by one millimeter we know the ball was over the line there's no subjectivity about it um the referees are going to call the game differently and in, in soccer that could make a huge difference whether it's a penalty a free kick a you know corners are pretty much there uh, Offsides, as you know is done by replay so I'll i'll say the following and i think I'll turn it to, I know Shane wants to speak, our robo-ump guy who maybe wants to talk about that. The good news is the big issues have been addressed through
3: technology and replay.
2: There are still Mm -hmm. others to go.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, that's right. I mean, basically penalty calls, I think, have become the big issue. It used to be offsides, and it's great that they've basically kind of gotten rid of that as an issue or made that as objective as one can make it. Uh, but I mean, I think home field advantage clearly matters in the on the men's in the men's like throughout the world cup history in the men's, it's like had a huge impact, right? I mean, okay. England's Korea? only victory was at home, France's first was at home. South Korea. <laughs> remember when South Korea went to the semifinals yeah, right. of the World Cup?
1: And that was <laughs> definitely. I mean,
3: I remember enough to remember those were some that that was definitely some dead dodgy referee, not potential, like okay. so but there was definitely referee influence in that particular result. So yeah, I think. It does seem to have a a
1: pretty big effect. All right. Well, good fun. Um, By the time this goes up, the winner of that match will be decided and we'll be on to the finals. Guys, let's briefly hit college football. The AP preseason top 25 just came out. And um, I, I mostly want to talk about an article that Matt Brown at The Athletic put up based on looking at historical preseasons, But just real quickly, let me give you the basic facts. I think most people know Georgia is such a consensus, number one. The next three across all the polls are Michigan, Ohio State, and Alabama in some order. Though Alabama, number four, like consensus number four, that's the lowest position for them in a long time. AP and uh, coaches poll, it's 23 out of 25 overlap. They're almost lockstep all the way down. If you contrast the preseason with something like Bill Conley's analytics poll you start seeing some differences but guys what's true is these polls come closer and closer to the analytics rankings with every year it seems to me used to there are huge discrepancies now i think these voters are paying more attention to what the power rankings say you don't see the big discrepancies as much it's hard to find
2: quick clarification the analytics rankings as of when like where how different are is are the polls from let's say the where things ended up last season or is it they have to get updated by the players that are transferring through the exactly. portal. That was my know.
3: question is how much these kind of things are based on like Alabama at number four, is that just based on their somewhat dis- by their standard disappointing season last year? Or is that also like the number of recruits, you know, five, you know, is there ch- changes trends in the, in recruiting are built into this as well?
1: Yeah, they are we're, we're trying to get them built in. So yeah. Bill, for example, with his S and P plus is going to have, all the roster changes and he's going to have, he's going to try to put numbers on everybody as they move from one school to another, the Alabama ranking in the polls, you know, they were disappointing last year. Um, but they also lost their quarterback. They lost their defensive end. They, more importantly, they don't know. They have known were they, they kind of reloaded their quarterback the last few years. This isn't a reload. This is a look for a quarterback. So there's some honest questions there, but really I wanted to hit this preseason poll because of this Matt Brown article, because he says, Hey guys, the best thing we can learn from historical preseason polls is how little we know this time of year. It feels like we know and we don't know. So this is a theme. Well, this our- is not
2: the thing, again, where we're going to ask us what probability we're putting on the top whatever teams. And last year I said like 30%, and you said that the Massey Peabody Sim is like it's 1% or something like
1: we, that. So is a softer version of that. But Matt Brown, again, at The Athletic, ran a bunch of numbers. So AP has been running through 30, 1936. Uh, they expanded – when we grew up, it was the top 20. And then they expanded in 1989. So it's been top 25 since 1989. The BCS era, which includes the playoff eras, is since like 2000. So that's the – these are the eras we're playing with. Adi wants to – Adi's got a clarifying now, question.
0: I want to jump in because before you tell me the results. Um, I'm wondering whether or not um, the, the article does what is often done, which is correlate the final rankings with the preseason rankings.
1: That's that. This is this is the the annual quiz of the correlation you just asked about. So you guys are. I
0: don't even know the answer yet, but I do know that that's a bad idea.
1: Okay. Okay. We are
0: smarter to look at like a power rank and correlate that you'll get a much better result than when you correlate ranks. Okay, but it's
1: interesting, because when you read these things and you listen to people, people feel, and it feels when you read this, like, oh yeah, those are the best teams. And then it turns out, well, let's look historically at what happened. So for example, well, to begin with, Georgia's two-time champ going on third time. We haven't seen a three-time champ since Minnesota in 1934, 35. I was
2: was going to ask you, I can't think of, uh, thanks for saying that, I can't remember ever a three-time champ.
1: it's remarkable. And you can imagine that probably was easier in the era where they declared these things by polls as opposed to by playoffs, because brand name and inertia and reputation. It's like all those Yankees are in the Hall of Fame. They it was good. So right. it. <laughs> but but by the way,
2: Kate, Kate you got right. Kate, can I Wait. let me just ask you a question. When does the expansion of the playoffs happen?
1: Next year. We go this from next, year. next year. In twenty four. All right. So I mean
2: I'm not saying things are stacked against Georgia. They're not, but I'm just saying they do have a lower probability of make of, of three-peating than we would have said if it had happened a year ago. I mean, there's just there's more teams in there. They're going to have to play an extra game. The no, Eric, this the shame. 24,
1: 2024. So this oh, year. Oh, oh, oh,
2: not this year.
1: We're into this year. This year is now. Next year is next year. Next oh, no,
2: forget it. They're going to three-peat. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> You're the reason we're here, Eric. Okay, here we go. Here's some question. Of the last 50 years of national champs, how many started out number one in the preseason poll? Out of 50 years of national champs, how many preseason number ones do we have? Now, we're going to be quick. Y'all don't think oh too hard. God, 40. No,
2: I'll say 10, 10, I'm going to go 15,
0: 15 out of 50.
1: Shane, right. you're not look. Don't No, no. Maddie, don't give us this stuff. Hold on. Shane, what do you got? You got I've got a lot of questions. Y'all are going to be quicker. Here's the answer eight. Okay. Eight. Only eight times out of the last 50 years, did the national champ come from the number one spot and only twice since 2000, Mm -hmm. the Oh four SC and the 17 Bama teams. Okay. Nine years of playoffs, four teams playoffs. How many of those nine years did the number one team make it? Now y'all think I'm, I'm, this is not, this is, I'm not, you know, this is like objective question. How many times did the number one team make it to the playoffs in the, in the four years, in the nine years of 14 playoffs?
0: Fourteen. Uh, I would say half. I was going to say six.
1: Shane, you're muted for some so reason. I would say uh,
0: okay. I need. I need to. I'm going to go four. Four out
1: of nine. Okay, seven out of nine. So, so, so he he's making the point that number one, they don't always win the championship, but they're making it into the playoffs. Okay, here's a here's an interesting little wrinkle. Since 1989, when they expanded to from top 20 to top 25, what's the ratio? Of number one preseason teams to number two preseason teams, in winning national championships. What's 21. the of uh,
2: one to so That's I, I am agreeing with Professor Weiner. <laughs>
1: That's a reasonable answer, right? So we're going to start dealing with some small samples here. It's yeah. actually one to two. One to two. More number two teams have won the national championship since they expanded to the top twenty five than number one teams. Okay. Probably momentum. Um, Here's a, here's a good one for y'all. This is, this is really fighting what seems obvious. In 25 years of the BCS era, including the playoff era, out of, out of those 25 years, how many times did the preseason top four end the season the to top four? In any order, any order, top four preseason, same top four at the end of the year out of 25 years. Zero. All and
2: four? It, all four. I just want to be clear you're asking about all four.
1: All four in any order. Zero. Eric is right. Eric is caught up with the spirit of the game. That's Notice
2: good. the first. And by the way, Shane, on the uh, arcade on the first one, when I said eighty percent, I meant one minus p. You were asking about. So actually, I've been accurate. I'm joking. I got it totally <laughs> wrong the first one. But let's let's go. I'm getting better <laughs> by the That's minute.
3: P one minus okay. p. confused. Yeah, yeah, we do difference? it all
2: the time. They sum to one. I got ha- I got one of the problems. Right. Words, That's right. right. It, That's right. It, it
1: works well for 50 percent propositions. Um. Here's a highly related question to the last one. The same era, twenty-five years of BCS era. How many times have three of the top four preseason teams made the final four in the rankings, oh. in any order? Three out of
3: four. That's probably happened once, I would guess at least. I was out of twenty-five. You said, Cade? Yeah, yeah. Once I, or twice. That would be my. Uh, idea. Yeah,
2: I'm going. Some still going to go with zero. Less than three.
1: Okay, y'all are good. It's twice twice so really this is i mean that's in, in a nutshell i think that captures it pretty well we're talking yeah. two years out of 25 i have three or four of the top four made the final four i mean that in the final ranking that is okay um
3: okay can see. i just ask I mean, almost five. almost happens that somebody outside the consensus top five get in there i right. guess so right?
1: i can give you that like the uh, the, the that's making, every year making making the final four one point three a year come from tenth or lower. One point three a year come from tenth or well,
3: that's lower. That's even more than I would have wow. said. It, that's y'all cool. remember the
1: heuristics we were using when you picked the March Madness final four? Because that's where we're actually picking four teams, and we think about what seeds. You know, what's the typical sum of seeds? What's the heuristic you think of? If you had, a, we've talked about this a lot. Like a, you know, a. a, a Oh, maybe one, one and, and then a, a, a two a two, a three, and then an eight.
2: I thought the average was like eleven or twelve, wasn't it? Or something. So twelve, four somewhere between ten to fourteen was the sum of the seeds in the final four. Wasn't that about right?
1: That's about right in the distribution. I think one, two, three, eight or something. And that's close to what you're talking about. That's fourteen. But you have a similar thing here where one and a half come from the top four, one point one come from the next five, and then one point three come from ten or worse.
2: So, Kate, let me ask, uh, you know, since uh, one of the nice things when you're a statistician is to ask the impact of design. So the consolidation we're now seeing in the, you know, the Pac-12 dissolving, the Big Ten, Big 12, do we expect that? I can make two arguments. One is... um the stronger teams will have a better chance to show. The other thing is that they're going to be playing a harder schedule potentially, and it'll make it even harder. So do we have, do we think there's an impact? If you had to forecast the distribution of this going forward, given the projections we have for the change in conference design, what would we expect? I think there might be less top teams, right, in there?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You've got two different effects going on. One, you've got this concentration of talent, which favors more top teams, but then, they're going to increasingly be playing each other. Exactly. And um, so I, I I agree. My intuition is that it's going to spread it out some, though, within a, a, a relatively small cluster, pre- presumably. I'm going to shut. I can keep going for a while because this 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 article is so rich. It's Matt Brown again. I'll fin I'll finish with a couple of final ones. Um, who's got the longest streak of preseason top twenty five, and how long is that streak? Years in a row, current. Top 25 preseason. Who's number one and how long is that streak?
3: I, I mean, I I can't imagine. I can't remember a time when, like, Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, any of those would have been outside of the 25, right? But, I mean, so we're going to have to go back a ways, I kind of feel like. like I, I guess what I'm saying is who's got the longest streak or how long is the streak? What, which
1: one do you want? Both. <laughs> it's Ohio State with 35. And second is Oklahoma with 24. Um, so that's Oklahoma just barely made it this year. So that's why it's notable. But Ohio State, 35 straight years in the preseason. And here's a good one that's related to that. Who has the record number of number ones, preseason number ones? And what? So in the history of the AP poll, which goes back to 36. Who's got the most preseason number one?
3: Too bad it didn't go back to 1880 and be something like Yale. <laughs> <laughs> That's <your> club, man. <laughs> hey, <laughs> man, Yale was dominant at these. It was.
2: Ago. It was. I don't know. Oh, it's. What I don't know.
1: Right um, now, we think it feels like it ought to be Alabama, right? How can it be anybody but Alabama? So, what are we what are we talking about? We're talking about eighty something years, and the, the record's ten. The record's only ten, and it's Oklahoma. Oklahoma has the most number of preseason. Wow. All right, guys, that's enough college football. For now, we're going to do many more episodes in future weeks. Let's talk baseball. What's going on? Y'all catch us up. We neglected it last week. We've got a little bit in our guest in the second half of the show, actually more than a little bit. But what are y'all excited about around Major League Baseball right
3: now? Well, I mean, I'm excited about how frustratingly bad the Yankees are. But we, I don't want to dwell on that because that is very short. <laughs> oh, no, you
0: wouldn't want to dwell on the Yankees crushing loss to the Braves yesterday. <laughs> or, or the
3: one before – the day before the Marlins. I mean, oh, honestly, my God. Hey, that I, is, could, I could do a whole review. But instead, what I would <laughs> like to actually – ask you guys about or, or one thing that's got me excited or, or that I've noticed in baseball is Miguel Cabrera is kind of in his swans on season he just he, the Detroit Tigers just played in Boston he got like a standing ovation from the Boston crowd which I thought was awesome so he's in you know he's retiring and you know I, I don't think we need to argue about whether that guy's going to the Hall of Fame or not we don't No. what he's- tier of the Hall of Fame do you guys put him in? Because he's, uh, I mean, but, yeah, what tier? I, I think he's Kay. an interesting case because he really is kind of the end of that power yeah. hitting. He's the end of the steroids era, though he didn't, you know, obviously, I don't think. Yeah, he's so he's, ended, he's, he's, uh, he's the end of that His peak era. is
0: as high as any hitter in the top tier, but his longevity is not. Yeah. And that's, that's, where, and that's where he can't make the highest tier. Um, I also wasn't among the top Tier peaks, he wasn't the peak by any measure. So, uh, yeah, I mean, say second tier Hall of Fame, as be be my guess. What do you think,
2: Eric? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say second tier Hall of Famer. I don't think if he was the best hitter in baseball, it wasn't for a very long period of time. He's been one of the top. 10 hitters in baseball for a fair amount of period of time, certain hall of famer, assuming there's no PEDs associated with him. I think second tier hall of famer. And you know what? Cause he does have, right. I've got this right. He's got 3000 hits and 500 yeah. home runs. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Well, Brad, so I mean, think there's only there's only five players I think in the history of baseball. I mean, so Billy Gays, Hank Aaron, Eddie Murray, Rafael Palmeiro, and now Miguel Cabrera. I mean, maybe a rod does, but I'm just saying that's goals. it. Oh,
3: does he?
2: Does Pujols have three thousand hits? He does. Okay. Maybe well, he doesn't. Maybe Pujols. But I'm just saying, if we, if it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we've listed all the players. Yeah,
3: no, and I mean, I think it is. And I mean, I mentioned Pujols maybe prematurely, but like I mentioned Albert Pujols because he was kind of how I think Miguel Cabrera. If Albert Pujols hadn't just retired last year, you know, maybe Cabrera could have snuck in to like maybe my my kind of top tier. But yeah, I mean. Interestingly enough, I mean, like in terms of like some of the cumulative stats, like you said, like hits, he's 20th and I, I think he's like 27th in home run. We got
2: them all, by the way, Shane. We got all seven. Aaron, Mays, Murray, Palmero, Pujols, Rodriguez and Cabrera. But yeah. you're right. He also played in an era
3: of uh, Albert Pujols and Pujols. Look, Pujols is top 10 across the board. I mean, that guy's for sure. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, but but it is worth that peak. So uh Mike just popped in the chat that he won a couple MVP's. He was also like, even more impressive than I think. Miguel Cabrera's top 5 in MVP votes in 7 out of 9 years. Like oh, 05 to 13. That's an inc- that that's pretty incredible. Oh, he's an Again, incredible hitter.
2: I yeah, forget. Yeah. Did he maybe, do I have this wrong Adi? did didn't he win the triple crown? Yes, he did. Yeah. In the year <laughs> he won the triple crown in the
0: year that everybody thought that Mike Trout should have deserved to be the MVP because of his sterling defense and his uh, center field location, as opposed to Cabrera's non-existent defense as a DH.
3: And he I mean, I thought the other thing, interestingly enough, he raked his entire career, and he played on some incredibly good Tigers teams, but the one World Series he won was like his rookie year in 03. (laughs) Yeah. With the Florida Marlins. Amazing. Anyway, so I I just kind of, I thought we were on the same page as far as that goes. I think we can have we can have it now or we can have it later. The other kind of interesting Hall of Fame kind of tier discussion um, is what you guys think about uh, Scherzer and Verlander. Uh, uh, automatics. Well, I mean, definitely Hall of Fame, but again, what tier of that Hall of Fame? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think they're. I don't think it's worth arguing. I mean, they are very obviously Hall of Famers, both of them.
0: I'm gonna. I'm gonna.
3: I'll so the interesting thing started. is, I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of tease it because maybe you guys want to look into this more. I can't just pop this on you, or whatever. Both of them, I don't think of either of them as that high, you know, top, top tier Hall of Famers as pitchers go, but both of them are top 15 now in strikeouts and still going.
0: All right. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug my own metric, Shane, our new hi. metric of uh, predicting Hall of Fame using our grid war. Mm-hmm. And I got for Justin Verlander as peak. Uh, so all this is post-World War I, uh, World War II, World War II. So 1950 and on. Uh, Justin Verlander is the 11th best Peak pitcher and ninth best career
4: Peak, yeah, yeah.
0: since. Wow. Okay. So ninth best rem- starting pitch starting pitcher. What starting, is grid war?
1: Us, yeah. Remind us about grid war.
0: So grid war is, is, is it just a, a a variation on starting pitcher war that solves some of the major problems that the starting pitcher war, the fan graphs were the baseball perspective mm-hmm. war has uh, for most pitchers, there. It's pretty similar. It doesn't change. It's not that different. Um, but for some pitchers, it's substantially different, and 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 in the full paper, I'll argue why those differences are important for those pitchers. What's
3: what's the most recent pitcher that's higher than like like uh, is there like a contemporary that's kind of I would imagine I mean, I mean, t- higher than him. I'm going to guess Pedro. Maybe. Of course, but, well, Pedro. Would, yes, I, I guess. guess. Johnson, I
0: guess. Uh, Roger Clemens. I mean, yeah.
3: But but, but I guess, like, I guess what I'm getting at is. Are, By the way, Justin Verlander, are we enjoying the last couple seasons of the best pitcher of the last 20 years?
0: We sure are. So I have as my number one is Greg Maddox, then Randy Johnson, then Roger Clemens. And those are, those yeah, are that, one, two, and three.
3: That passes the smell test.
0: And, so. Yeah. And then number four is Tom Seaver. Um, mm-hmm. And then five is Pedro. And Pedro uh, hold, hold Adi, Adi,
1: how yeah. are you aggregating across the two dimensions?
0: Uh, I did something incredibly simple and it works incredibly beautifully. All I did was, and here I'm using ranks. Um uh which are nonlinear. Um I use the career I use rank for career times the rank for peak, and I take the square root. So it's the it's the geometric mean which accounts for the nonlinearity of the of the product of the uh, of the career and peak rank.
1: Wow. That's very that's Bill James ask, I would say. And it's yeah. very
0: simple and it makes an, an enormous sense. We call it, call it the Weinerian formula.
1: Winerian. Yeah, yeah. Winerian. Uh, okay, Adi, but you didn't tell us, and you need to tell us at least an example of the problems with war that this solves. And I know this is a whole paper, but can you give us briefly an example of why this is a better way to look at it?
0: Well, it, so a couple of things happen. First of all, um, uh, a couple guys kind of move up um, by this technique, t- this technique that like, like Nolan Ryan is much higher. Uh, Bert Lyle is higher um, because these guys are, are incredible eatings, inners, I- I- eatings, um, e- innings eaters, and there, that the traditional ways just undervalue them. These big complete games, shutouts are very valuable, and the other ways just don't
1: don't see that. Am I remembering correctly that that what the, in in essence, what I remember this does is that it it takes kind of a game as yes, a unit of exactly analysis. You can have one really bad game that'll blow up all your stats, but it's just one game. So if you have that's nineteen true. great games and one really bad game, that's a phenomenal year. Is that do I have and that? I, that right? And I, and I can it.
3: see why you. Uh, Excluded World War Two and before, right? Because <laughs> well, would there be a would there be a yeah. pitcher from beyond World War Two in the top hundred by this? Because like okay, every, so I, every reason why we did nineteen twenty, it. like it, like yeah.
0: You're so it. I'll tell you the simple reason why we didn't do it is because we have an API and we're talking right directly to ah. MLB, and we needed to know when a pitcher is leaves the game what the base out configuration was when they left the game. And that avail- that avail- that it's available on the API from 1950 on. It's yeah. not
3: earlier, and and I think we'll that's actually better though. That don't, I I wouldn't use it pre World War II anyway because it's like it was a it was a different sport.
0: But what is interesting about it is we actually work really hard to, to deal with the era and the park um, to get that worked out properly. Um, and actually, what's happening now is that the, the the values of the starting pitchers are plummeting, and the re- simple reason is they don't pitch longer, but also because when you pull out a starting pitcher, the back end is so good that replacement level is pretty good, mm-hmm. and so yeah. the gap between a starter, a top starter, and the placement back back end is so much less that it's the the, the overall. That's why, why we
3: have openers now. It's why we have you know, openers. I don't think we're gonna.
0: I'm, I don't think we're gonna see a pitcher with six WAR by the end of the year.
1: Adi, real quickly, to wrap up the segment, we're going to hit a couple of things before we go, but give us again your top 10. Quickly, top 10 overall aggregated by this new measure since 1950. You say they are in order?
0: Greg Maddox, Randy Johnson, Roger Clemens, Tom Seaver, Pedro Martinez, Jim Palmer, Sandy Kovacs, Gaylord Perry, Justin Verlander, and Bob Gibson.
1: Gaylord hey, Perry, no kidding. Is that because he pitched it with his 53? That's amazing. He's unbelievable. He has 94 career G-war. And here's the other thing. He's... P crank is
0: a
2: lot better than people think.
1: Yeah, I right. Because we remember the... Right there. Amazing. Oh,
2: okay, right. we're past... I'm past 53, and I'm still, I'm still playing.
1: You still collecting <laughs> more? Still collecting more, Eric? Okay, while we're dealing with advanced stats, I want to ask you all what you make of this graph that somebody threw up baseball reference, maybe, on OPS plus by ERA plus. All the teams, MLB teams right now, and the Braves are just crushing yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, basically, I, I threw dimensions. that up there
3: complete dominance of both pitching and hitting um in a way that i mean obviously i watched the game last night we could see it sort of in front of our eyes but no i mean it's uh they are such a well-assembled team and again we kind of uh they're well assembled in kind of a way that like almost again i, I talk myself into dynasties too much so, so shane i gotta right ask now, you
2: then but... of course in the last 30 seconds we have here there are 16 teams that make the playoffs how much probability above one sixteenth are you giving the braves
3: only a very little bit. I mean, <laughs> hey, the best <laughs> records. I mean, you know, come on, no, in they get, Seattle they, they in they like two thousand one. Yeah, no, it, it it unfortunately has no problem. Or fortunately, unfortunately, doesn't really, I think, mean anything come playoff times. But they are having. Uh, they they are looking right now but in August at totally dominant.
1: But that that I mean that undersells. If you believe in these stats, if you think these are you know we're getting better at, at these stats, we the stats should be more and more predictive. So other than the noisiness of the game, this does speak to how dominant they are. The fundamentals of this team are quite strong.
3: Yeah. But again, I think playoff time, I start thinking much more about the noisiness of the game.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's note that that not too far behind them in that, in that northeast quadrant is the Texas Rangers. So it's a little, um, got some new names up there. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Um, good fun. Good fun. Again, that's from baseballreference.com. Shane, is that right? We can get that. We should get that. I
3: think it is. I mean, I think I probably pulled it off of Reddit, but it should be attributed.
1: Okay. Okay. All right. All right, guys. Well, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball this week. We do a full hour on sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Come back and join us after the break. We have our interview segment in the second half after this break.
2: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, one hour of sports talk and analytics here on SiriusXM. One of the great things, uh, I'm joined by my co-host today, Cade Massey, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen may jump in as well. One of the great things about our show for the last nine plus years has been that we get to talk to people who are actually on the front lines of analytics and sports. And guys, this is no exception. Uh, we're now joined again. This is his return visit to Wharton Moneyball, Ned Coletti. Uh, Ned's an executive with 40 years plus experience in Major League Baseball, including general manager of the Dodgers. Um, I could spend all of our time we have with him reading his bio, but I'll just say a few things. Um, a four time Emmy Award winning baseball analyst. He's now joined the professorate. He's a professor of sports administ- administration at Pepperdine University. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Big Chair. And now we're going to have to talk to him about this as well. He's also now worked as a scout for the San Jose Sharks, the National Hockey League. So again, Ned, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball.
4: Well, thank you, and thank you for the for the nice introduction.
2: Well, Ned, there's so many things we could talk to you about, but one of the things that I think we'd feel an obligation to talk to you about is the rule changes that have occurred in baseball. And there's a lot of discussion about, you know, maybe it hurts the pitchers because they don't have as much time to rest in between. There's also maybe it helps the batters because they can time things a little better, but who knows? Um, what, what do you think the effect of the rule changes have been both? Let's talk about it from three perspectives. I'd, we'd be happy to hear all three. Is there any change in what the front office will have to do because of the rule changes? Second, how about from the player perspective and also, of course, from the fan perspective?
4: Well, I would say one of the main changes in front offices is with the um, with the elimination of the shift, the defensive shift, um, you can no longer have a middle infielder or even really a third baseman who doesn't have range. In the past, you could get away with it a little bit because you could play that player in short right field if you had a left-handed pole hitter up. You can't do that anymore. So, first step quickness, being able to read uh, the bat off the ball or the ball off the bat, all these things uh, you're going to have to build your defense uh, a little bit differently for that. Also, your your pitching, uh, you know, you you talked about the the shortness between pitches now, which I think from the fan standpoint is terrific. Um, I think that that will take some getting used to, and I would almost um, I wouldn't mind if we get to September first. And they move it back a little bit, maybe four or five seconds of pitch, uh, certainly in the month of October, uh, to give it a little bit more life, uh, not life, but air to it. Um, I think it's been a a revolutionary change. I think baseball was starting to lose a generation of fans um, that didn't want to sit for three and a half hours and watch a game, be it on a media or be it on in person. So I think that is a, a magical change for them, tremendous change. Uh, I'm a traditionalist, but I still understand that, hey, you know what? You've got to get people interested and keep people interested. And I've been following the game long enough and a part of it long enough where I remember the time of games you see now with with the pitch clock, we used to see all the time. So we're we're not really revolutionizing the game like putting the DH in the National League or putting the DH in the American League many, many years ago where you're changing a huge dynamic. No, we're actually going back to what we used to do a little bit. So it's, that is yeah, amazing. it's a fascinating.
2: We've had so many guests on talking about this. This is the first time uh, we've, someone has brought in the insight of the def- effect on defense and the range of players. If you had to guess, how many teams slash players do you think this will affect? Is this going to affect like, you know, every team's roster or, um, you know, in some sense, everybody wants a third baseman who can have range anyway?
4: Well, I think you I think you have to think about it differently if you're in the front office. Before, if you had somebody who could really hit and was an offensive player and they weren't DH material because maybe you already had a DH, you could get away with it a little bit. Now you really can't get away with it. And as you watch defensive alignments now, you see the second baseman playing legally to the first base side of second or the shortstop to the third base side of second, but barely. So you've got big gaps in there. So if you do not have somebody with range, be it your first baseman, be it your third baseman, you're gonna or, or the shortstop or second baseman going to their right or going to their left, you know, it's gonna change, it's gonna change the outcome of a pick of a play. And so I think you've got to think about it and you've got to make those types of adjustments. And I think as you draft, as you acquire players, I think players who can do that are going to have a little bit more opportunity than the players that are maybe getting older and have lost a step. The last few years, if you lost a step and you play the infield, they still find a place for you. A little tougher today.
2: Adi wants to jump in, but just one quick follow-up question: Do you think there'll be an effect on the number of pitchers that most teams carry if it's true? And maybe you've seen some data on this. I don't know. Maybe Adi has, but if you've seen some data on this, like um, pitchers will fatigue faster, they can't pitch as much, you need a bigger roster of pitchers. Do you think there's the possibility that that could happen as well?
4: It's possible. Anything is possible. But, you know, again, going back to you know my my days in the game and my career. You know, when pitchers started to pitch seven innings as a starter, you started to say, well, you know, we we could probably use eight. And then it got to be six. And then it got to be five. So, you know, it keeps the expectation level continues to decrease. This is the first time in many years that the expectation level of that position has a new factor to it. You've only got X number of seconds to release the ball. But that's like the only thing in, in my memory in a while that has changed. You know, they they changed the mound back in 68 after Bob Gibson had that incredible, incredible year. Uh, but there hasn't been many changes to that position except less work, less innings. You know, you look at, uh, you know, Sandy Koufax, for example, his last year, he, he pitched with a torn ligament probably in his elbow because he needed surgery. It wasn't Tommy John. And he's, you know, he and his career, he had 27 complete games in that season that he, was, that he wasn't 100% healthy. How
2: yeah, many? Before I turn it to Adi, let me just say quickly, Adi think, I think Adi asked me the other day, I think it was Adi, it might have been one of my sons, I don't remember. Sandy Koufax has more complete games in that one season than I think um, one of your favorite players, Clayton Kershaw, has in his entire career.
4: And there you go. And Clayton Kershaw is as good as anybody that's picked up a baseball in the major leagues in the last 15 years. As good as there is. But yeah, so, we always talk about is, er- different
3: errors being
2: totally comparable. Yeah. yeah. Well, Adi, Adi wants to up. Uh, Adi, please jump on in here.
0: I got a lot of comments there. I'm going to start with, with the reverse with the Sandy Koufax. I mean, the, the thing about those pitchers is they, they pitch so much, they accumulate far more war than a guy who pitches five innings. I mean, it's hard to be that valuable as a position when you have when you're not going through the rest of the game, but on the other hand, on a kind of per inning basis, they're more valuable. So you kind of have this this trade off that's going on where we would we used to have a starter pitcher go so far, and they actually weren't so great by the end of the game, but we just let them pitch anyway because that's the way it worked. And now we are today's game where the, the starters are pitching so much less, and now you just need much more many more pitchers. And then you throw into the mix this whole new innovation where you can't. You can't. Uh, you got to get re- release the ball. You can't walk around and you know you know get some some time where you recover. This has definitely got to be pushing a youth movement. And and no. you you're you talking about it in terms of the infield. But if you look at who's really surprisingly good this year, who are they? They're the teams with youth. And and I mean I've been watching uh, as Eric will, will and I will just jump in, we're Yankee fans and we're not doing well. It's the first season in my memory. We're in last place. And a lot of people are talking about our, and the Yankees' inability or the poor inability or just bad luck or whatever you want to call it. They just don't have the the young guys who are doing
2: well, like the teams who have who have, who have have risen up. Yes, yeah, so and Ned, what are your thoughts about that? And then I'll let uh, Kay jump in.
4: Well, I think any, in any sport, if you're going to speed up the game, you need youth. It, 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 it goes hand in hand with the speed of a game. You know, I scout in the NHL. You know, guys that got to be 34, 35 years old, you know, most of those guys, maybe they were, they were, they could really fly 15 years ago. They ain't necessarily flying today. So anytime you do get youth or get faster, you need the youth. So your your point is, I think, right on. Yeah, Cade, please.
1: Well, he, Ned just answered my question, which was what is the relation between youth and the rule changes? Why? Why? It does seem to be an observation this year. What is the actual connection?
4: Well, it's also cheaper. You know, when you you've got there's there's few there's few positions that you have more risk in, and this is probably why innings became shorter and shorter for starting pitchers than the pitching market. Look what the Mets did with, with with Max and, and and Justin Verlander. What was it forty three mil a year, right? You know, for guys that are, you know, in the sunset, you know, they're not they're not on the way to winning twenty games anytime soon. So it is a very expensive proposition. So to your points, the younger you get, obviously, you've got more control over salary until they get to be three years almost in the game, two plus, and a high number of days for arbitration or free agency. So the youth movement is a a positive probably for a lot of reasons, from a business standpoint and from a, a, a compete standpoint, not experience. You can't microwave experience. But from those two perspectives, you'll see it. And that goes to your drafting and your development and your ability to, to find your own players. Nothing's more expensive or volatile than calling up an agent and trying to sign a free agent who you've never had in your room before and all you've done is watch them. You can get all the medical you want. You can talk to anybody you want. Nobody knows those players like the team they're on. And that's a, that's a, that's a tricky proposition most of the time.
2: Well, we're here on Wharton Moneyball. We're talking to Ned Coletti. Ned is an executive with 40 plus years experience in Major League Baseball, including GM of the Dodgers. And I'm joined by my co-host today, Shane Jensen, Audi Weiner, and Cade Massey. So, Ned, let me ask you, I'm going to ask you, since we're, we're an informal show here, let me ask you in the most informal way I can. What the hell made you have any credentials or the ability to scout for a National Hockey League? Or let me put it in a more analytically oriented way in a, you know, um, Is it the same things, like if you can scout in, like, could you scout for an NFL team? Could you scout for an NBA team? What actually made you qualified, if you'd like, for that transition? And, you know, what do you think you could transfer between the two sports?
4: I think think a lot of it is transferable. How you manage your roster, how you manage your salary cap and things like that, going from baseball, which has a luxury tax, not a salary cap, To hockey is probably the the biggest adjustment that I've seen and, and smaller staff, so to speak. But there's so many similarities to it. I watch athletes. I've been, I've been evaluating athletes for decades. I start at the feet. I work my way up. How do the feet work? How do the hands work? How does the mind work? In, in every sport, and, and baseball looks like a slow sport, unless you're standing in a batter's box and somebody's throwing 98, then it's not too much of a slow sport, right? You've got a split second to make up your mind. Take a book, lay it out like this, drop it, and the time it leaves your hand the time you hear it hit the floor, that's how much time you got as a hitter to make up your mind. So, in every sport, in hockey more than most, you've got split second decision making. So, as I scout, How does the decision-making work? How does their pulse work? How does their compete work? How do all these things mix in? And you could take any sport, and you're going to have to know these things. So the adjustment, you know, I can't say I've had a a ton of adjustment to it. Uh, And you you have to be passionate about whatever you do. You know, I write 25 – my first four or five years, I wrote 2,500 reports. You know, I talked to my baseball scouts that I I had had an an ally in San Francisco – And they said, 2,500 reports. Are you crazy? How do you do that? We've only got, you know, you got less games. You got half the season than you do in baseball. But you got to be passionate about it. And, you know, you got to be committed to it. But the athlete's the athlete. And I think that you look at what they do and how they do it and how they play in different situations. When the chips are down, when things are going great, you know, anybody can celebrate. Not everybody can come back like where you're talking about the Yankees are at right now takes a takes a pretty robust psychological team to fight back from where they're at right now to before you- I turn it
2: over to Shane, who I know has a question, just a quick follow up on this um, Ned, so how since we're an analytics show, how do you blend the scouting report with the hard data and analytics? Now you could put on your GM hat here, you could put on your current hat um, how did you think about it? What if they diverged um, you know, how did you think about, if you like, combining, let's call it the data and the scouting and the, like, The, the if you'd like, I know you're going to hate what I'm about to say, Ned, the objective and the subjective view. How did you blend those two together?
4: Well, I think that, you know, hockey has analytics. To the extent that baseball does, probably not. But in every one of my reports, there was, there were analytical services that NHL teams have. I would write my report. I would watch a game. I would write my report. And before I would submit it, I would go through the analytical study of that game and of different players that I had an interest in, that I had written reports on. And the end of all my reports, there was an analytical section that I would put in there. I don't know if other scouts did. I don't see other scout reports, but I I always blended the two. You know, in my years, and and people see me as uh, anti-analytics, you know, I'm an old school scout type of thing. That's not really me. Okay. When you're the general manager, you're looking for information from everywhere. And I used anal- analytics, actually, and they were prehistoric compared to today. But analytics helped me advance my career in the mid-80s in my first job with the Cubs. And, and so I'm a big proponent of it. But I think that it's important, whatever information you use in any business, to be able to measure it the way you see fit to make it conducive to what you're trying to measure and what you're trying to figure out.
3: One of the kind of primary differences I think about between baseball and hockey, other than, you know, the action of the sport itself is kind of the trajectory or length of kind of time from sort of drafting to kind of major league or NHL play. And obviously major league baseball famously has a very long kind of developmental pipeline, And so I guess what I'm really kind of trying to ask as as kind of a scout, how much of your activity is longitudinal versus what we would call cross-sectional or cohort in statistics? How much are you kind of judging different, you know, players and their kind of future ability based on, you know, them all at the same age? Or how much are you kind of tracking, like talking, you know, writing about a player's kind of how a player is progressing in their development?
4: Well, you do, you, they do progress quicker. It's, you know, you have, uh, you have players, you draft from all over the globe. And within a couple of years, you know, they're going to, they're going to be in the show. You know, the kid that Chicago took first, Berard, He you know, he's, Badard, yeah, the he's, he's ready you know, he's now. The <laughs> NHL. You know, McDavid, he's going to the NHL. You know, so you, there's not many baseball players that get drafted and go right to the big leagues. Okay. You know, NBA, NFL, a lot different, obviously. But the, the, to compare the two, you, you project, your projection is in a much smaller window of time. You know you're drafting this player. You've got probably two years, maybe three years to have this player contribute at the highest level. And you know, not everybody contributes immediately at the highest level. Some need a back and forth time to, to kind of figure it all out. But it's, it's far quicker. And see, one of the other differences between the two sports is baseball. You've got a window to, to sign your players. You don't sign them, they're going back to school, right? So in, in hockey, you have a lot of players that you draft that end up staying in Europe for a while, that end up playing Canadian junior hockey, that end up playing collegiate hockey in the States. They're still under the guise of an NHL team. They're still, quote, tradable. They're still, quote, signable with the team that drafted them. But you've got about 700 players that are no longer, they're not professional. They haven't signed a contract yet, but they're not eligible for the draft, which is totally different than baseball. It's, you're either in or you're out in baseball. They're here, you're in, but you're not quite all the way in yet for the kids in junior or in major colleges in the States or in Europe. So, Ned, I know we only have you
2: have time for you maybe for one more question. So let me ask this. Um. Which of the two sports do you think, I'll just build on Shane's question about the draft, which of the two sports do you think is more predictable from the draft? I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, maybe it's hockey because there's a shorter time window till the actual time they enter the league. But maybe in baseball, you could say, well, they've got a lot more plate appearances. They've got a lot more data. Which of the two sports do you think if you had to forecast success, would you rather be someone doing the prediction for baseball or hockey?
4: Probably hockey. Because you do have a shorter window. When you think about drafting a baseball player at 18 years old, he may not get to the big leagues until he's 23 or 24. You've got all sorts of things that are going to come up in life, right? You know, like, you know, most, most people go away to college and they have that experience. Some get drafted at 20, 21 as juniors. Some sign out of high school, first time away from home maybe. So, you know, you've got a longer route in, in baseball. You've got more things to probably overcome than you do in hockey but again it's it's, a, it's an art and those people who are in charge of amateur drafts are, are some of the best talents and evaluators in the world but i'd think a hockey's got less of a less of a runway to go to get there doesn't mean they're going to get there doesn't mean you're going to have made a great pick but they have a, they have less things that are going to probably impact them than uh, than a baseball player's got coming out of high school certainly Well, Ned, we'd
2: like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Ned Coletti. Ned is an executive with 40-plus years' experience in MLB, including GM of the Dodgers, really honored four-time Emmy Award-winning baseball analyst, now a professor of sports administration at Pepperdine. He's also doing work as a scout for the San Jose Sharks. So, Ned, thank you again for joining us on Wharton Moneyball. You're welcome. Thank you guys for having me on today. Great. So this has been one hour of our podcast edition of Wharton Moneyball on behalf of myself, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey. uh, And of course, our producer, the boss man, Matty Datz, and our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Thanks to all of you. Uh, Between now and next week, uh, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics. And of course, we will see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.